our text this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 30. Philippians chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 17. And, uh, well, it says verse 14 up there, but I must have skipped a few verses or something. But verses 17 through 30. I'll be reading this as we always do from the English Standard Version. The Apostle Paul is uh, addressing the people at Philippi. And he's letting them know a little bit about his travel plans. Now, at the time that he was writing this, he was a prisoner. And uh, he was, and, uh, but he was thinking that he was probably going to be released from prison, but he wasn't too sure. But he was telling them about some of his future plans. This is kind of what we would call a little travel log right here in the middle of the letter. So, let me read this now, beginning with verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shall shortly, that I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to you. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." And the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. As I said, we want to talk about role models a little bit. Um, now, I realize that you know, this seems like but yesterday to me, but there's some of you people that don't even remember some of these names I'm going to mention. But back at one time, back in the late 80s and even into the early 90s, the San Francisco Giants, they had a first baseman named Will Clark, and he was a fan favorite. He ended up uh, going to, after, after 1993, he started in 1994 playing for the Texas Rangers. He played for them for about four or five years himself. And, you know... Every batter that you watch, you know, in the major leagues especially, they, there is something peculiar, sometimes maybe even quirky about their batting stance. Sometimes you can tell who's up to bat simply by the way that they're standing there at the plate with the bat in hand. Well, Will Clark, he was the one guy that you like to watch come to the plate simply because he was really a good batter. He had a lifetime batting average of 300. He was a six-time all-star, and so he was one of these guys that whenever he came to the plate, all eyes were on him, and he would get up there, and there would be a certain way that he would swing his bat, and then he would bring it, before he'd bring it to his shoulders, he would always reach down with his right hand and pull up the sleeve on his jersey and get it all bunched up up here, and then he was ready to go. Well, one night I was watching on uh, ESPN. They were telling about all the baseball games and the scores, and they said, we've got to show you this little uh, video snippet that someone took. And they said, this is just precious. 
And anyway, it was a little leaguer. And he comes up to bat. And he swings his bat just a certain way. And then he brings it up to his shoulder. And then he tugs on the sleeve of his jersey to bring it up and get it all bunched up. And he was ready to go then. He had watched Will Clark so many times that he had Clark's movements memorized whenever he came to the plate. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? You know, back whenever I was a younger preacher, and this is back during the, especially during the 60s and 70s, and then even some, and we find traces of it even in the 80s, a lot of Baptist preachers, Southern Baptist preachers, they wanted to sound like somebody else. One of the ones that some of them would sound like would be like W.A. Criswell. And I can't really copy him, but he would have this quiver to his voice. And uh, there was a Carlos McLeod, who was head of our evangelism department for many, many years. He was a member at First Baptist in Dallas. Dr. Criswell was his pastor. And whenever you would hear Carlos McLeod preach, he would sound like W.A. Criswell. That's not all bad. A lot of evangelists, especially, and, and not a few pastors, tried to sound like Billy Graham. And they would practice on pronouncing their words certain ways. And I don't really think that any of them were intentionally doing that. I really don't. It was just that they listened to them so much and they admired them so much that they ended up taking on some of their characteristics. There's really nothing wrong with that. You know, our passage today deals with three particular men, Paul, Timothy, and a, and a, a Philippian named Epaphroditus. And, and all three of these men are what we would call role models for ministry. And it is something that would apply to each of us. If we're going to, to serve in the Lord's kingdom, we need to look at role models like this. As a matter of fact, you're going to be starting the process of looking for a permanent pastor. You need to find a permanent pastor who is going to follow the right kind of role models and be that kind of a role model. So let's look at what it's talking about. Paul is a, giving us an example here of himself. It's someone who serves with joy. And that's uh, in verses 17 and 18. You can pick up on this. If any, and notice what he says here. He says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, by saying that he is, he is stating that he might not be released from his imprisonment. In other words, I may be poured out as a drink offering on the uh, drink offering on the sacrificial altar of your faith. He didn't know whether he was going to get out alive. But he said, even if, that is, if, even if death was what was in his immediate future, he said, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. In other words, if spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ was going to kill him, he rejoiced in it. That was, you know, he served with joy. And he said, and I want you to be glad with me. Now, listen, if there was ever a servant of the Lord who had a right to gripe and complain about things, Paul did. I mean, you can read about his, you can read about some of his autobiographical things in Second Corinthians. You can read about him in the Book of Acts. And he was he'd been shipwrecked. I don't know how many times he had been beaten. He had been stoned. He often went cold and hungry. He had been imprisoned. I don't know how many times he had received the the forty lashes minus one. I think more than once he had been beaten with rods. He was hated. He was ridiculed. You name it. Paul endured it, but it seems that we have no record of him ever whining or feeling sorry for himself. 
Instead, what he could say was, I rejoice, and I want you to rejoice with me. You know, here he was, even as a prisoner with a possible death sentence hanging over his head, and he still didn't gripe or groan about anything. Rather, he rejoices. Well, why in the world could he rejoice? Well, there's one reason is this. He was on the king's business. And he has the privilege of making the greatest announcement of any event that has ever happened in the world before his time and since his time. I mean, think of the, the honor that that would be. You know, every year we have get this announcement from Poxatawney Phil up in wherever he is. He's not here. But, you know, here he is, this overgrown rodent is trying to tell us whether we're going to have more days, more weeks of cold weather. And don't you know the guys that get up and read that declaration of that groundhog, don't you know that they're proud that they get to do that? Well, that groundhog is wrong most of the time. But whenever we think about what Paul got to announce, the greatest news that ever happened... You know, and, and so he, he rejoiced about all of that. You know, really, doesn't the scripture tell us that this is the way to serve the Lord? You know, and, and, and you know, it's, in the scriptures, don't they tell us to serve the Lord with gladness, not with griping? You know, can we really serve the Lord and enjoy his presence as long as we have a bad attitude about things? You know, sometimes, let's admit it, it's hard to do. And sometimes it is hard to be joyful whenever we real, but we can still be joyful if we remember the right things. You know, you know, here's one of them is to keep, bear in mind, there is no problem that we can encounter that's bigger than God. I may have told you this before, I can't remember, but back whenever I first became a pastor, we had a little dust up in church like all Baptist churches have, it seems like. You have to have one just ever so often, I guess, to keep you honest. I don't know. Anyway, it, it just, it crushed me. You know, there was a man in the church whom I had admired and loved, and he talked to me like I was dirt. And what it was, it was the church had wanted to get a new parsonage. They'd been wanting to do it for years. I didn't ask for a new parsonage. I liked, I was happy with where we lived, but the church said, no, we're going to get another one because this thing that you're living in is ancient. And it was. But there was one deacon that he raised a ruckus. Swore he wasn't going to come back to church. Or if he did, he certainly wasn't going to give any offering. And I just couldn't believe he would talk to me that way. And so I called up one of the other deacons who was even older and I went over the scene, and I remember that old deacon, we sat down at the dinner table, and he grabbed my arm, and he started patting me on the hand. He said, now I want you to know something. He's been this way for years. He's always done stunts like this. He said, now i got a, question, a couple questions I want to ask you. He said, is this problem bigger than the whole church? I said, well, I don't guess it is. He said, is it bigger than God? I said, no. He said, well, that's not a problem. And it wasn't. <laughs> you know, and there's so many times that we can have setbacks and we feel like that it, and it just puts us in a deep funk. But understand this, there is no setback, there's no problem that is bigger than God. I've never been able to forget what that man told me, and that was nearly 40 years ago. No problem is bigger than God. And whenever we look at it that way, then we have to realize that, you know, 
God can take care of everything. Just like Job said. He said, I know that thou canst do everything. And what did the angel Gabriel say? He said, with God, nothing shall be impossible. You know, and another reason we can have joy is this, is we can serve with joy when we realize that whatever happens to us is really part of God's plan and purpose. You know, nothing, no nothing is really ever out of God's control. We're all familiar with that passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and it's where it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. You know, if we keep these things in mind that we've talked about, we can serve with joy. We will serve with joy. And folks, we must serve with joy because there is no way in the world that we can proclaim the good news of great joy which shall be for all people if we try to do it with bitterness, and griping, and complaining. We have to have joy. I mean, this is an element in it. And isn't it a whole lot more pleasant to be able to serve with joy than it is to be serving with a scowl on your face all the time? What about this? Paul also gives us this example of serving under God's authority. As far as Paul was concerned, his life really didn't belong to him. He didn't have the, the privilege of calling the shots on everything. He realized that everything that he did was done with God's permission and that all his plans depended on God's will. I mean, no, look at what we just read. Look in verse 19. He said, I hope to see, to send Timothy to you soon. No, I, I left out a part. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. In other words, his hope was based upon what God was going to do. Uh, verse 24. He says, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. In verse 29, what does he say? He said, so receive him in the Lord with all joy. And I think that this is, no, I'm sorry. I need to back up. I wrote down the wrong passage where it talks about Epaphroditus who was so sick. And he said he was near to death, but God had mercy upon him. And so what it is he's saying is this, is everything that's going on, this is all a part of God's timetable. I am not the one that is in charge of things. And you know, we have to trust God every day, day by day, believing this, that God knows what he's doing. Now, I don't know whether you're like me, but half the time I don't think I know what I'm doing. You know, and, uh, and you probably don't either. But God always does. And when we trust him, we are going to seek to, to we're going to seek and and delight to do his will and to do his will his way. We need to remember something that we are not in charge and are in control of our lives as much as we think we are. We're not in control of this universe. We are not the masters of our destiny no matter how smart or clever we may think we are. Now, for some of you that are younger, you don't remember this, but I do. I, you know, it's terrible now that I look out and I, and I can tell about something that happened whenever I was young and people just look at me like, you know, did you know Columbus too? But anyway, you remember back in 1981, John Warnock Hinckley tried to kill President Reagan. And I mean, President Reagan, I mean, it was a pretty serious wound. He, he made a lung shot on him, as I recall, and it was bad. And he was rushed to the hospital. 
And of course, there were others that were wounded too, but he was rushed to the hospital. Now, what do you do whenever the president is incapacitated and cannot fulfill the duties of his office? What if something urgent came up? For all we knew, it could have been some type of an international plot to destroy our government. The vice president was George H.W. Bush. And he had taken a trip down to Houston to be with his family, and it was the first time that he had done this since he had been sworn in as the vice president. Now, people were saying, well, who's, who's in charge? Now, if you like this man, fine. I kind of liked him myself. You know, there was something about General Alexander Haig that I never could dislike. I mean, I liked him. Remember, he was a general, and he was used to giving the orders, and he liked to be in charge of things. Well, there was a press conference, and he was there at the press conference, and there was somebody, some, some journalist saying, well, well, who's in charge right now? And Alexander Haig's were so immortal. I'm in charge right now. Well, he was the Secretary of the State. But he was wrong. <laughs> because the chain of command was pretty long, and he was kind of down on the end of it, really. Because if the president is incapacitated, then the vice president is in charge. And if the vice president cannot fulfill the duties, then it is the Speaker of the House, who at that time was Tip O'Neill. And if Tip O'Neill couldn't have done it, then it would be the president pro tem of the Senate, who at that time was Strom Thurmond. And then it would be Alexander Haig. Don't be like Alexander Haig. He was not in charge. You're not either. And so if whenever we serve, if we're going to be the right model, role model in our serving, we're going to realize we're doing it under God's authority, not under our own. Another thing that we see here. Is, is the thing about Timothy. And, and Timothy is one of these that he's an example for us, is a guy who serves with proven character. Notice that he talks about, uh, <clears throat> in here, he said, uh, let me get back on the right page again here. And uh, because he talks about Timothy's proven worth in verse 22. The idea is that of this proven worth is that he had been, he had been put to the test. And he had come out showing that he was the real deal. In other words, he, was, he, he had proven character. Timothy's character was proven. We don't know all the ways and the things that happened that caused his character to be proven. To be proven means to be tested, to be shown to be genuine. And folks, anyone who seeks to serve in God's work and in God's kingdom is going to be put to the test at some time or another. And there, those tests come in a lot of different ways. Maybe it would be a temptation to do what was wrong. Or maybe it would be he would be put under a heavy burden with, with deaths in the family or other things going on in maybe some of the churches where we worked. The thing is, is that every test that we are faced with, when we pass that test, we become stronger. You really, if you're going to have role models, you want guys that have been tested that have been put through the mill, so to speak, people that know, uh, that, that know what it's like to go through a trial because trials will always reveal our true character. You cannot discern someone's true character when all is going well. Another thing we see in here is about service is that this was something that could be said about all three of the people mentioned. Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul, they served with selfless concern. Paul considered his life as an offering made to God. 
In other words, he wasn't looking out for himself. Timothy's aim, as he mentions in here, Timothy's aim was not to help himself, but to help others. His aim was to serve others and not to be served. Epaphroditus was willing to put his neck on the chopping block. In other words, risk his life in service to Jesus Christ. That's what you call selfless concern. And folks, selfless concern grows out of this. It, it starts with love. It grows out of love and affection for other people. I had, back whenever I was a, a pastor in Burnett County, Texas, there in Central Texas, Mount, uh, Marble Falls was in our uh, county. I was in Bertram, which was really at back that time kind of a wide spot in the road. We weren't, we weren't anything like Marble Falls. You know, at one time Marble Falls was just kind of like Snuff Junction, but pretty soon that's what Bertram was, and Marble Falls got to be rich and prosperous. But they had a pastor there at First Baptist of Marble Falls named Max Copeland. Max was my, Max was my friend, and he was a great pastor. And I loved him, and I admired him. Max had been there at First Baptist Marble Falls for 130 years, it seemed like. He had gone there when he was about 21 years old, and, and really at the time he had been there more like 30 years. And uh, one time Max had a heart attack, and they put him in the hospital for several days. They practically had to chain him to the bed because he kept getting up and going down the hall and visiting other sick people. But that's how Max was. I remember whenever, uh, whenever I was down there, you know, if there was a First Baptist County seat church in the hill country, I mean, every preacher in Texas was waiting for it to have an empty pulpit because everybody wanted to go there. Well, First Baptist Church of the county seat, burn it, uh, they, were start, they were starting to look for a pastor. And one day I'd gone by to see Max, and Max said, Joe, has anybody been asking you to recommend them to the First Baptist and burn it? I said, yeah, yeah, I have. He said, I get resumes mailed to me, seem like every day, wanting me to recommend them to the First Baptist and burn it. And he said, some of these people I don't even know. I told the church and burn it. I'd send them every resume I got. And if I knew something about them, I'd write it on the back. If the back of the paper was blank, it's because I don't know them. By the way, he said, why don't you let me recommend you to that church? And I said, Max, you know, I, I, I don't need to be there. I said, they need someone not like me. They need someone with more dignity. Max said, shoot. He said, they don't need dignity. They need somebody that will love them. And you know what? There were people that lived in Burnett County that thought that Max Copeland was... <laughs> able to walk on water almost because the thing is is that he did not come to be served but to serve I think his role model was Jesus I think that's what Jesus did don't you now I'm going to say something right here and I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers don't want to offend anyone but I'm just going to be honest with you about something as I said this was a, a passage that was I thought pretty important for for our church here simply because, you know, you will be looking for a permanent pastor. But I want to tell you something, and then maybe my, my ability to see is not what it used to be, but I see a trend going on today that I don't really like. Many of today's pastors do not consider it their job to serve others that much. 
it's like one or two of my good friends told me, he said, we got preachers, but we don't have many pastors anymore. They give themselves wonderful names and, and neater titles that make them sound so much more important than what we used to be. And I've often thought, what's wrong with just simply the title pastor? You know, I mean, I don't need to add anything to that. But they call themselves, lead, some of them like to call themselves lead pastors, but they don't take the lead in visiting the sick or feeding the hungry or clothing the ill-clad. It kind of makes me think of something that Jesus said that's recorded in Mark chapter 12, and he's talking about the religious leaders of his day. He said, these guys wear their long flowing robes, and they like to be called by special titles in the marketplace. But he said, they consume widows' houses. And, they don't, and they're out for themselves, and they're not out for others, and they're certainly not out for God. Those are not role models for us, folks. And the, kind of, and the thing is, is we need role models. We need good role models behind these pulpits that we have in our land. But we also need to be the kind of people that are like what we read about Timothy, Paul, and Epaphroditus. They, don't, they are not out to serve themselves but others. You know, every year around Christmas time, we take up an offering, and we, it's a mission offering, and we name it after a lady named Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon was one of the great Baptist missionaries and a model for service even today. She was born in De on December the 12th in 1840, and she was appointed by the Southern Baptist Convention as a foreign missionary in July of 1873. She served in China for 39 years. She passed away on Christmas Eve, 1912. She had starved to death. There was a famine in China. And the reason that she starved to death was not because our foreign mission board didn't do something to help her. She kept taking her food and giving it to the starving Chinese. Hmm. Now, you want to see something? Someone that would serve but not seek to be served. That's a model for us, isn't it? Folks, we should all be good role models. That there ought to be someone that will be able to say that because I knew so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so, I began to understand what Jesus was like just a little bit. Wouldn't it be wonderful if whenever someone thinks of you and your life, they immediately think about Jesus Christ? Be a role model. Let's pray together. Now, our Father, we thank you for those that have gone before us that have been role models for us. We thank you for the people like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. We thank you for the, the, the example of sacrifice and loving concern and strength and joy that, that was in their lives. Now, Lord, give us the strength to be that right kind of a role model. Let people see Jesus in us maybe more than he, people have ever been able to see him before. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us, your goodness and your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.